This podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation News, the publication for professionals working in the UK and Ireland's medical device industry. Subscribe now at medtechnews.com. Hello and welcome to the MedTalk podcast, bringing you the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, editor of MedTech Innovation News, and on this episode I'm joined by Nick Landsman and Neera Shah from the HealthTech Alliance. We discuss the alliance itself, its vision, as well as the challenges of technological adoption in the NHS. And we also discuss the effects that COVID-19 has had in terms of attitudes to technology. First, uh, Nick Niraj, um, thank you very much for joining me. Um, first of all, for those that don't know so much about you, can you tell us a bit about the Health Tech Alliance and why it's different to other organisations surrounding the health sector? Because you know we, we see vast amounts of groups doing different things. So what makes you stand out? Should I kick off with that? I mean, it, it's interesting. The health Tech Alliance has um, really been going for about almost five years now. And I think the start of it was really to do with the frustrations that, that med tech companies, health tech companies faced uh, with, you know, going through a nice approval and then not getting automatic reimbursement. Then there were struggles in, in terms of having to show cost savings in a single year. And then there was often a lack of skills to evaluate effectively these sorts of new technologies, particularly the new ones like AI. Um, I approached Dame Barbara Haken as she retired from the NHS and she'd been a doctor uh, and then it got into management and over you know a, a career of 40 years uh, she became deputy CEO and I approached her on her time to say look would you like to chair this new group uh, and she agreed and again I said that was that was five years ago and so what we've tried to do is is operate a, a system of um, quite bottom-up um, members deciding what they want to discuss and how we tackle these problems collectively. So I like to think of it as a coalition of the willing. Uh, an interesting thing, as I'll hand over to Nero, she's talking about how, how our members, I think what defines the Health Tech Alliance is, is, it, is its membership. Uh, it's a mix of not just industry, but also representatives from the, the health system. So I don't know if Nero, do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ian, first of all, for having us on the in the podcast as well. Um, yeah, so so Nick mentioned we've got a number of sort of associated bodies involved in the Health Tech Alliance. And I think the brilliant thing about that means that industry is not just having these conversations about health tech adoption in a vacuum. Uh, you're having it with experts around the table. Of course, right now we're all virtual, so the virtual table. Um, so our associate bodies that are involved include the likes of the AHSN Network, the Shelford Group, um, more recently the Independent Healthcare Providers Network has just joined as an associate member. And we also have representatives from NIHR, the National Case Mix Office, um, and so on and so forth. And it, it really brings that expertise to the table, which is, is really helpful in some of these discussions that we're having. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's noticeable that you mention a lot of organisations there, and instead of them all going off and doing speaking from a different hymn sheet at the time, it's it's imperative that you actually get people together. Otherwise, I think it actually speaks to a lot of what we heard at your recent uh, Parliament Health Tech event was collaboration came up a lot, and it, it's, it seems to be a case of if there's not, if there isn't that collaboration and you're off doing different things, you just, it, the system just com- becomes increasingly fragmented. 
Yeah, collaboration is definitely the the, the key word for for this year and possibly for the next few years as we come out of uh, COVID. I think you're right, Ian. The 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 advantage we've got is that both sides, whether it's industry or all the other representatives from the health um, bodies, are really keen to solve the issue of how we can get tech into the system. Um, it, I, think, I think initially, a few years ago, it was all a question of you know, the, the, the companies getting very frustrated or banging on the table. Why can't you just understand and get our uh, wonderful technology into the system? But we've discovered that there's many people within the system who are desperate for this technology and struggle to get it in. And that's for lots of different reasons. It can be just inertia. It's a huge organization. Um, but I think, you know, there's this and what I mean by that is, it's, you know, we've done it this way before uh, and, and it's very difficult to change. Uh, and then I suppose there's specific things around around health tech that are peculiar to health tech. In other words, you know, doing randomized control trials works for pharma. It doesn't work for, for health technologies. It's, it's difficult to do those um, easy uh, measurements. Um, and also, I suppose that, as I alluded to earlier, the skill set of how to uh, evaluate, how to change patient pathways, these are things that take time and are not easily done. Uh, and I think it's, it's that collaboration that is starting to get people to understand that you can make changes and they don't have to take so long either. I think just to add there, the, the challenge that both industry and, I guess, decision makers are facing is, is a common challenge. How do we get the tech into it? to help patients and, and both want the best for the patients, I would think. And COVID has demonstrated that collaboration can happen if there's that real cultural desire. Um, and, and long may it continue, you know, we've got some really difficult challenges up ahead and it's it's going to require a heck of a lot of collaboration to, to really address them. Uh, you've been around for five years, as you've mentioned, but I think if we can just take that little bit of time from when you started out up until just before the pandemic struck, I mean, I think I remember it was your inaugural event, which was in person. You had Matt Hancock speaking. Can you, is there any way that you've been able to measure the progress from when you started out until then? And then the progress that has happened since the pandemic? Because I can imagine there's probably been as much progress in the past 15 months as there were in the three and a half years prior. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. I think... I don't know. For the first year, I think the Health Tech Alliance has been finding, the first year was finding what are we trying to solve here? What are we trying to, to, to do? And also it's a question, lots lots of things have happened. It'd be wrong for the Health Tech Alliance to take all the credit for lots of these changes. So I think the, the pipeline of change was happening. As you're right, the whole pandemic has speeded things up. Um, but I think the, you know, just bringing people together and making it bottom up, so rather than this top-down approach, I mean, Dane Barber has always been keen to say, what do the members want to hear about? What are they finding difficult in the system? Uh, and Dane Barber, with her huge experience and knowledge, was able to then call on people to come and speak uh, and try and solve these these problems. So, you know, we, we've heard from, you know, Get It Right First Time, GERFT. We've heard from different, uh, how NICE has been approaching things differently. And I think the important point for these bodies is actually um, hearing back from industry what's working, what's not working, having that feedback mechanism that's been very important. So these things are sort of subtle changes uh, and assistance to the system. Um, um, but also we've been you know, campaigning for, for changes. That, again, the, the point I made earlier about how um, companies are having to show that their their kit or their product or processes, uh, their health technologies show in-year savings. And this is incredibly difficult, but we've been responding to the consultations. We've been uh, speaking to people one-on-one to say, you need to change that. 
And I know other groupings of bodies and associations being the same thing, but we have had that change now. And, um, you know, we're now looking at cost savings within three years, which does seem more sensible. Um, if you probably touched upon this already in, in a sense, but what's the what's the vision that the Health Tech Alliance has for Health Tech? I mean, what, what would you like to see going forward? Um, it's a very good question. Uh, one of the things we're looking at right now is, is how rolling back to get good technology, to get good health tech into the system, you almost have to have the foundations right. And I think the Health Tech Alliance is, going, is, is increasingly going to start looking at how we get the IT, the infrastructure, cloud to do good AI, for example, you know, cloud technologies have to be involved in the system um, within hospitals, within, within research and so on. So I think we're going to be starting to, to look at how um, the system can do uh, AI better. And to do it better, it needs to get the IT sorted. And this has been a long, ongoing battle. Um, and, uh, I, and I think this has got to be addressed uh, going forward. Um, so what's one of, one of the areas we're looking at uh, focusing on is, is how to get AI into the system. Because, you know, this is the future is going to be about AI to do triage. AI is currently doing lots of imaging um, and obviously to do diagnosis. So these are the areas we want to focus on, how to move from a system that treats ill people to a system that actually keeps people healthy and monitors their, uh, their vital signs and so on. I think, um, yeah, at our last conference um, uh, just in April, Lord Bethel said it really well. You know, we want to move away from this um, this whole notion of late stage intervention to more preventative early stage care. Um, and I think that is really the vision. We, we want to make sure that we're not just intervening at the last minute and med tech is almost a, an afterthought, if you like. Um I think Nick makes a really good point about the anchor technology, if you like, that needs to be in place because there's so many things. Um, and I, I don't want to criticize the NHS too much here, but the, the NHS um, is notoriously perhaps bad at things like faxes, using faxes still in this day and age. Um, so there's so many things at that level that need to be still implemented. And, 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 and essentially, it also comes down to the question of, is the UK going to be the best or one of the best places to invest, to launch products. Um, and it's safe to say that um, a lot of co uh, countries are catching up. We have, you know, we need to think about what does our post-Brexit future look like as well. Um, and we're under some really difficult financial circumstances, of course. So it's, I wouldn't want to be into in, the one making those decisions, let's put it that way. It's an interesting point that you make there, but uh, I'll... I know you mentioned uh, your, your conference and we'll come on to that in a minute, but I just want to stick with the mention of AI because even though the vision is preventative, uh, you know, using technology for, in a preventative way rather than reactive, but I think there's also a, there's a discussion that I was having earlier about how do you regulate AI? Is, is that one of the big factors that you, you've got to consider when you're, you're trying to encourage the implementation of new technology, especially AI, when you've got to consider basically barriers to entry and how things are going to be regulated in the future. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I mean, there's almost two elements to the regulation. One is uh, to, to regulate it from an ethical perspective uh, and then to ensure that it's um, evaluated effectively. And they're sort of, you know, two, two sides of the same coin, really. 
Uh, and obviously, there's lots of work being done at a European level, a US level, and a UK level on, on the ethics of, of algorithms and, and how there's enough transparency to test them, et cetera, et cetera. But then if you look at technology, and I'd say most of our members are doing uh, at the very least, along there with their medical devices, some forms of, of uh, monitoring machine learning or AI. And that is an area that will have to be evaluated more and more carefully. And to do that, the skills are needed within NICE, uh, within the MHRA. Uh, and we need to up those skills to enable us to be able to approve um, not only devices, but their, their parallel services to, 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 the, uh, to the patients. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a challenge. Um, and, you know, Nirash talked about, you know, how we, if you look at one of the goals for not just the Health Tech Alliance, but I'm sure for the UK government, is how to make the UK the best place if you want to launch uh, health tech. Uh, because if you do that, you're going to help patients in, in the long term with their outcomes. But again, part of this is making the place is to make it safe for patients, but also to regulate in a way that doesn't stifle innovation. And I think, you know, moving now under the new system, it was just yesterday that the um, the uh, medical um, regulatory uh, regime has now shifted. We will have uh, the UKCA. Uh, we will have the MHRA making approvals for things in the UK. So that's a, an opportunity ahead uh, to do things slightly differently. We may not diverge much from European regulations of medical devices, um, but we also could have the opportunity to um, be agile and make sure that the regulation isn't too onerous unnecessarily so. And that means part of it getting people with the right skills to do approvals for medical devices. And that will attract companies to say, actually, we want to do business in the UK. We'd like to research and test our products here and launch them into the UK market. Uh, and quite a lot of our members say, actually, you know, Germany, France, they're way ahead. They're using our products more. We struggle to get them through the system here. And that, I think, has got to change. And, and the, the new regulatory regime uh, and the, the skills of the MHR are going to be part of that change to enable uh, it to be easier to get technologies to, to the UK patients. We've got a big job as well to do on patient confidence. Um, I'm intrigued to see what you know the forthcoming data strategy says. Um, legislation alone is not going to fully alleviate, address some of the patient concerns, rightfully so, on, you know, that patients have on the use of their data. So there's a big job to be done there as well, I think. Just following up on what you said then, Nivaj, what would you like to see? I think any sort of efforts to use patient data is going to need to be matched with some sort of education and awareness campaign. I think that's really important because patients need to go know what benefit or how their data is going to be used I think if you talk to patients and you say, well, your, your, the data that you provide, which is anonymized, um, is going to help with, for example, the detection of certain diseases, I think they would fully back that. I think that's, that's really important. Um, I think it needs to be underpinned, of course, with strong regulation, as, as Nick said earlier as well. So I think those two things, are the, those are the two things are probably the things that are at the top of my mind in terms of what needs to happen. Um, but it needs to be backed by strong signals that this is the direction of travel and this is what it means for patients. And we need to make sure that patient groups and, and charities are consulted as part of this whole process as well. It's really important that we do that. Okay. I'll uh, just uh, like to bring you back to your uh, most recent uh, conference or virtual conference as it was, where you had uh, 
world battle given the uh, the keynote speech and he asked everyone to think back to the year 2000 if the pandemic was then so, so he was illustrating that we were in a better place to deal with the pandemic today uh, probably because of the infrastructure that was in place everyone can work from home etc but in relation to health tech how important is national infrastructure when it comes to technological advancement in this space um i think just a step before that the sort of national policy is really important and the signals that that government and nhs and live are really important um so that's one part of it and i think it absolutely needs to be backed up by strong infrastructure um i think we saw perhaps at the start of the pandemic that and and we're now trying to address this we need some form of diagnostics industry in this in this country um and you've seen as well what strong infrastructure has meant for the vaccination drive it's you know without that strong infrastructure and the ability to vaccinate people at such pace um, i say as someone who's just recently been vaccinated it's it's really impressive um you also need that strong regional infrastructure as well so uh, academic health science networks are really unique in bringing that well acting as that connective tissue between national and local and they're going to be increasingly important so i think i think it also comes back to that point that nick mentioned earlier as about as well about uh, having strong IT systems. Um, unless you get that right, I, I just don't feel you can really move along with the rest of the perhaps more high-tech um, high tech technology. I think, yeah, I support all of that. Um, and I think the the other element to this, Ian, is, is making sure that the future with the ICSs, the integrated care systems, work. We're, we're right at the infancy of how these might work. But the future could be really positive. The concept of, of joining up local uh, authorities with the health system uh, where budgets sit above everything and we work out what is the best thing for a patient and ideally keep them out of hospital. Um, at the moment, the structure of funding is such that, uh, you know, hospitals get paid um, according to the, the patients coming into the system. Um, and obviously that unlinking of that is really important so actually make it um, encourage patients to stay out of the system because that will save a lot of money and actually keeping people healthy safe uh, at home is got to be uh, the part of the future and that's how we all save money and Niraj alluded to the huge debt we've got because of COVID uh, so keeping people out of hospital getting the system space that's the infrastructure but it's also making sure the ICSEs work, that there is truly uh, integration and uh, dealing with patients as part of place as opposed to uh, anything else. Uh, and we're going to see, you know, how this pans out over the next uh, few years. I've just uh, got one point to follow up on from uh, something that Niraj said. It was about the, the diagnostics industry. Um, where, where do you think it stood at the at the start of the pandemic? Because I've spoken to a lot of people with you know within diagnostics development who fe felt like they were almost unfairly picked on earlier on in terms of I think it, it was one thing that ha Matt Hancock said was that they were they were building up a diagnostics industry when and I think and I think they thought it was a bit of a slight when really they should have been referring to lab capacity. I'm just intrigued to get your view on that. Yeah, good question. <laughs> a tricky one too as well, Ian. I think, yeah, there was, uh, I think we've seen as well this week with uh, Dominic Cummings uh, alluding to a number of things, but uh, there was a lot of sort of perhaps rhetoric at the time uh, and clearly there was a need to build up the diagnostics industry, but the lab capacity was a big issue. Now, 
I would have loved to be a fly on the wall during all of, a lot of these discussions because it's still not clear to me, you know, where responsibility lay in some cases. So I think there's, I think the UK is now addressing it, which is really positive. Um, but uh, it's it's still not clear to me what, you know, what were the real issues back then um, and, and who's really to blame there. And I think wider than that, I mean, just coming on COVID, it would be great to have full and independent inquiry because there's a lot to be learned in this whole um whole time that we need to make sure we don't make the same issues and, and problems again it's, it's funny that that was actually yeah that's actually formed part of two of my recent editors letters both the diagnostics industry and uh and uh well, where's the inquiry just in case of this isn't a case of um uh, just trying to lay blame but it's a case of you can refine and build up certain parts of the industry that need to be built up if need be but uh, I think you know, I'll, I'll try not to diverge too much and get into the, the um, political squabbles that are going on at the moment that are surrounding all this um, but if we can just uh, come back to your most recent conference where during Lord Bethel's speech he seems to he seems to allude to the fact that we're more of a focus on health tech um which areas do you expect to see the most advancement in if that's the case i know we've, we've talked about ai already is that is that one particular area or do you can you can you see other areas as well yeah i think um, nick you might have a few things to add here but i think ai is definitely one of those things we had the secretary of state announce the ai and health and care award at our last conference and since then it's been um, very successful i think that will continue to be the case and, and ai has that potential to take almost people off the waiting list if they can be almost screened um, ahead of time. Um, uh, data is obviously key, and we've obviously mentioned that before. Looking forward to this, you know, UK government data strategy. Um, but but generally speaking, you know, I think remote monitoring is going to be key, but any solution, whether it's remote monitoring, day case surgery, that just simply takes people out of hospital settings or reduces their stay and thus has a real impact on the waiting list that will really uh, be important yeah i think if i could just add to that i think the last point you said there you know which is really important is how we reverse it round. it's in a sense there's lots of technologies ai being one of them and i think we have to turn it around and say what what is the problem what the problem we're trying to fix here and actually look at it from a disease area for example so you look at cardiovascular, which is a huge problem, the biggest problem we have in, in, in most Western societies. Um, and how do we address that? And it's partly looking at prevention, <clears throat> but it's also partly looking at how people can stay out of hospital, stay well, and monitor themselves. And I think it's then looking at what is the best technology needed to keep people well, healthy, informed, and improve those patient outcomes because the outcomes we have in so many areas cardiovascular diabetes are very poor the uk fares very badly uh, and this is an opportunity to use the technology to to improve things so i think we just need to look at it how do we solve some of the problems we have in society and then use that technology in the in the most appropriate way it's, what yeah, I mean by that is it's too easy to jump on the latest widget and bit of technology. And I think we need to make sure that the system looks at how do we solve health problems uh, and prevent them. Yeah, I think that I was about to say that that was a common, uh, com a common um, opinion that I've heard from a lot of people is that there seems to be all this technology out there, but there is a case of what problem does it solve? And that question hasn't been asked first before. Yeah, yeah. They've, um, they've put the cart before the horse rather than the other way around. 
Yeah, and I think it's you know industry to a certain extent is it, it needs to also play its part. Too often, industry goes away and produces a widget, a piece of kit, and then goes and wants to sell it to the NHS, and that is you know not the right way around. And I think industry is learning that that it has to see what the demand is, be demand led, and then come up with a solution. And that is what we're, that's what we need for the future. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about. Um people trying to sell into the NHS because they've gone away and developed something. But as I see that a lot of the good quality innovations that or the good quality new innovations that are coming out tend to be from people who've actually worked within the NHS in the first place and they've actually identified an area that they probably struggle with on the front line and gone away and developed it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That is that is what is happening. But I think in the past it 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 wasn't it wasn't like that. Uh, and I think as we move forward and increasingly we have to understand the problems uh, first and then come up with solutions. This probably ties into my next question, but this can also uh, be uh, be applied to the public as well in terms of have attitudes changed enough to make new kinds of technologies easy to adopt? I mean, I think COVID will have had a big role either way. But... I, think, I think attitudes definitely have changed in the sense from a sort of NHS perspective, there's a desire, you know, amongst the workforce to not go back to what where things were. Um, so not returning to the way things were done, which perhaps less efficient um, and less technology driven. I think the things that will continue uh, are clearly the things that have worked well in terms of um, remote consultations with GPs. That that seems like a, a given that's going to continue, and it seems a no brainer given we're. You know, we're on a um, a podcast link right now and we're doing Teams meetings and Zoom meetings. It's such an easy thing to, to implement and carry on. Um, I, I also think um, the public's attitudes have, have changed as well because they've become so accustomed to working from home and using technology to just to do their, their everyday jobs. So I think attitudes have definitely changed. I think the only risk is you then, uh, you then whether that is enough to transform um, attitudes at senior levels, for example, or um, enough to really make sure that the drive to create ICSs is, ha- does have technology embedded within it as well. So I don't know if Nick had any other thoughts there. I, I need to say, I think, I think there has been change. I think it will be more evolution than revolution. I think it'll take many more years for this uh, for these necessary changes to happen. I think there's still reservations about nervousness with what we do with people's patient data. Uh, I think there's pockets where there'll be evangelists and people keen to take up new technologies and try them out. And then there'll be other parts of the NHS where it'll be very, very slow. And I think you know that's potentially the role for the Health Tech Alliance, working with organisations such as the Academic Health Science Networks, get it right first time. The trusts, uh, we hope ICSs will, will join uh, health tech clients, and then we can look at how you look at where success happens in parts of the country, um, and then try and extrapolate that and spread that take up. And I think that's be the future. It'll be a, a slower change, pockets of real brilliance and using new technology in an exciting way, and then the, the challenge will be to get that spread and take up across the whole country. Is another challenge also to get um, get everybody trying to move at a similar speed as possible, so everything you know, basically stays as connected as possible, so you don't end up with a fragmented system. 
Yeah, I think more fragmented. absolutely. I think that in the, in the ideal world, that is entirely the case. I think that the word postcode lottery will probably continue to apply, but only because it will be difficult for certain parts of the country. It could be to do with the resource. I mean, we know, for example, if you look at cardiovascular, that the centres for heart are, you know, in Papworth, you know, it's Cambridge, it's London, it's, it's Manchester. So the southwest uh, loses out a little bit there. So I think regional differences in is, is inevitable and the challenge is to is to accept that but also to make sure where parts of the country are uh, need assistance need leveling up to use a term uh, we, we 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 decide to do that um and i think that's the focus i think we've got to accept there will be variation and that's not such a bad thing that allows some areas to try things out in advance and if they work then they can they can then get adopted elsewhere this actually probably segues nicely onto the uh, to collaboration, which came up a lot at your conference, and we've already alluded to it, to it earlier. Um, this was inclu- including the health and care bill, I think Lord Battle mentioned. But it is collaboration as a broad term. So, which aspects of you know health tech or even the health service do we need more collaboration, and who needs to work with who more? So I think. Um... It's a really good question. I think at the at the local level, I think that's what's really exciting um, our members because right now, um, if a product gets adopted um, in one trust, it doesn't necessarily mean that a neighbouring trust in the same patch is going to take that same product up. So I think more joined up thinking at that level is going to happen because of the advent of ICSs. So that's something that's really exciting. So that must continue. And I think to one of Nick's points earlier, ICSs are at different stages of their journeys, respective journeys um, across England. So there needs to be a lot of best practice shared between ICSs as well. Um, but we need to make sure that the national and local aspect is is aligned and there's greater collaboration there. I think academic health science networks are really key as the, the primary vehicle and the connective tissue between those those two entities. So it's it's at both vertically and horizontally, if you like, um, for want of a better phrase, that we need that greater collaboration. But also industry has a real role to play. I think it's shown, you know, how important industry has been in the in the COVID response. So that that collaboration between industry and the NHS in the broadest sense needs to continue as well. You've mentioned industry, and I think I was actually going to come on to industry after this anyway. So thank you for nicely uh, segueing there for me, Nash, um, because. I think one of your your panelists in the in the, in the following session uh, referred to relationship with industry. So how has it changed? Uh, you know, during the past, you know, about the five years from when you started, you can go about the fifteen months since COVID. Or, but how how has the relationship changed, and how can it progress? So maybe if I take that first part, sorry, Nick. And uh, perhaps in the past, it's been uh, a relationship. Um, built on sort of opposition, if you like, in the sense that industry has been considered as um, talking to the NHS only because they need to sell their wares. But I think COVID has really demonstrated that when industry is required to, it can really mobilise to great effect. It can flex supply chains. It can help respond to demand spikes, but also slow down in some other areas where obviously elective care, for example, is obviously reduced right down. Um and industry and, and the NHS are both aligned in, in trying to help people live healthier lives. So I think that's really important. Um, 
that's where it's going to go. I think it's it's only going to go uh, one way. I'd like to think it's only going to improve because the advent of ICS should really help in that respect. Nick, anything else to add there? Um, yeah, just just I think how has it changed the relationship between industry? <laughs> I think it's becoming more about partnership. I think industry wants the opportunity to test its uh, and trial its products. And I think we've got to find more ways for doing that um, and, and be quite nimble. Yeah, I think the trialing aspect is always interesting because it, it'll, a common complaint or I've, I've heard from innovators is that it's a case of there's not willing to take a chance on, on certain innovations where they've gone elsewhere to try and get you know the results that they need to prove to, prove to the NHS that it does work in the first place. So, I mean, I, I, I can imagine that that may have been something that you've heard as well. Yeah, I mean... Um... I think the real world evaluation piece is always going to be difficult for med tech products. Um, that will always be a limiting factor um, because there isn't you know, a risk appetite unless there are really high safety standards for a product to be tested. I think it's a real shame, for example, that the commissioning through evaluation program, which offered that, um, has obviously been halted. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully that does change. It, as Nick said, it's not going to be revolution. It's always going to be an issue. And I think you made a really good point, Ian, about other markets speeding up. We, we often hear France and Germany are really amenable to med tech companies, health tech companies, um, and some of their pathways are much more ambitious. So I think the, the NUB scheme in Germany is often cited because it, it uh, supports, I think, 70-odd products, and that compares favorably to the med tech funding mandate, which currently supports four. Um, so we really do need to solve that piece. And, and I, I feel like it's slightly above my pay grade to know what the exact solution is, uh, because it does, t- it does require a bit of risk appetite. And I think we've seen in the, in the vaccine drive, um, all credit to the government for investing early on and backing what could have been uh, you know, companies that may not have produced candidates. Um, that risk appetite has been really apparent. And we'd love to see that level of risk appetite perhaps with med tech products as well, um, because there is a real role for health tech in this NHS recovery. It has to be fundamental if we're going to take people off of waiting lists and treat and get their treatment earlier, but also screen and diagnose them much earlier so we know the true patient backlog. I think that links that point you know, links to the, the future of the ICSs. If you can see um, a return on investment. In other words, if you can save money from one part uh, by getting people out of hospitals and keeping them out of hospitals or not being going around the system, looping around the system multiple times, that's going to be a huge cost saving. And and I think the the, the appetite for risk that Neeraj is talking about here is, is how you invest in a brand new system that might require capital up front and the saving might be down the line, but the outcomes will be enormous and, and will keep people out of hospital and keep people healthier, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the, we're at that point where it's almost an inflection point where people are starting to go, yes, we need to invest for the future. It might mean changing a patient pathway significantly, um, but the outcome and the cost savings will be down the line, uh, but we just need to do it. And I think we're getting part to the stage where, you know, we've had seen some of these changes in the system and, and hopefully many more will come. Okay. Um, you've uh, got another event coming up very soon. Um, first of all, can you tell us about it? And can you tell us how it's different from the recent uh, Parliament Health Tech event that you had? 
Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Ian, for allowing us to shamelessly plug our events. And I hope uh, some uh, some listeners, um, hopefully, first of all, they've reached this uh, this point in the podcast, but they do sign up as well. So, so yeah, just to just to um, outline that bit further. So we're doing, um, as Ian said, we had a, a face-to-face conference last year, and we had the Secretary of State speaking, he announced the AI and Healthcare, Health and Care Award. We also had Dr. Sam Roberts, who was then Chief Executive of the Accelerated Access Collaborative, speak then. And the AAC, interestingly, was just starting then, and it's clear that there's going to be a lot of backing of the AAC this year and next and so on and so forth. So this year, we've already had one conference in, on the 27th of April um, with Lord Bethel, and it was on the topic of health tech and the NHS recovery. And in June, on the 24th of June, is our next conference. We're shifting gears a bit. We're looking at that whole health tech, AI, and data issue. How do we bridge the divide? How do we make sure that patients have confidence? How do we make sure that the workforce truly benefits from a lot of this innovation? So it's a bit more um, looking into the future this time around. Um, And we're delighted to say that Dr. Indra Joshi, the director of AI at NHSX, is going to be our keynote speaker. And we've also got an excellent panel um, with representatives from NHS England, NHSX, um, and the Department for International Trade and a number of industry as well speaking. Um, and Barbara, Dame Barbara Hakin, the former Deputy Chief Executive of NHS England, is also chairing this one. And we've also got a conference later in October, which I'm sure we will be pushing and promoting. And I know I know Ian has signed up to our June conference as well, so I'm sure he'll be uh, enjoying that one as well. Shamelessly plugged and shamelessly plugged very well. (laughs) Gents, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks, Ian. Thank you, Ian. Thank you.